Hello everyone, Brian here. If you'd like to support the Head Games Podcast, I encourage you to check out our Patreon page over at www.patreon.com forward slash headgamespodcast, games spelled G-A-M-S, of course. There's all kinds of exclusive content and perks waiting for you over there, so please go ahead and check us out, and thank you as always for your support. everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb. Here with me is a special guest. We'll get to that person in just a moment, but also Mr. Jonathan Carter. Hello, Mr. Jonathan Carter. How are you today? Hello, I'm good. I'm excited. This is being fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited for our guest as well. Uh, Before we get into our main topic, we're going to touch up on, you know, our usual odds and ends business. I just wanted to talk a little bit about a little setback I had this week. I'm, I'm dealing with some injury right now. Yeah, uh, what'd you do that for? Yeah, it was very foolish. I don't know why I chose to do this, <laughs> but uh, just some like mid foot pain that I got in one of my runs earlier this week and, and one of my shorter runs too. It was just a, a three mile run and I ended up with a sore foot afterwards. And I just wanted to talk about my approach to the injury. I think it's real easy when you're doing like these long training programs to get super disheartened and like down about this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking the head games approach to it instead. I, I'm focusing instead on what I can control. I really had no control over getting injured. You know, it just happens sometimes. And so I'm just making sure I treat it really effectively. I'm doing a lot of rolling and stretching and all that kind of stuff. And it's been working. I haven't missed a run yet. It, it has only uh, a little bit of soreness left. I feel like I might break through on this long run tomorrow and it might kind of fade into the background. So I'm appreciating applying your advice, Jonathan. And instead of complaining about being injured, I'm just focusing on what I can control about it. Yeah. Last week, I think it was, we talked, you were struggling with the idea of like rest days, not the idea of them, but I I know you were considering overworking. I'm hoping that this is not a product of doing that. (laughs) I don't. I don't think so. I mean, you you can argue whether my my assigned schedule is overworking. Right, 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 and right. That's possible, but I, I have been sticking to the assigned schedule. Yeah. So, uh, I guess I'm kind of absolved of some responsibility if I have been overworking myself in that case. Sounds like you're doing the right stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to, and that all goes back to focusing on what we can control and doing things properly. So I just wanted to share that story first of all, and also take a minute to say thanks to you because I think a lot of that approach comes from me talking with you every week. I It's very easy for me to get disheartened about these kind of things and be like, well, guess I'm not doing this marathon anymore because my body's breaking down on me and woe is me because I'm getting old and I can't do the things I used to do. It, it's real easy to go down that path. And I'm happy that my instinct now was to just you know see what I can do about it, see how I can get better. And it's working. So good news for sure. Yeah. I think that pumping the brakes is really infor- important like that too. Cause I think when people don't, and then they just like, don't run for a day or don't, you know, insert whatever for a day, like that's when they just end up not doing it for two days and then a week and then right. a month. <laughs> so good job stopping that cycle. Yeah. yeah, it, it just snowballs from there and I, I'm glad we got out in front of it. Okay. That's about all I want to talk about on outside stuff. I want to get to our guest now and our guest is going to hate as I do this introduction, because I know they don't like when I say uh, complimentary things, but we have wrangled one of the best Magic the Gathering players in the entire world, someone who's been at the top of the game for years and years and years, a pro tour champion, a platinum pro, every single possible accolade you could heap on someone short of the Magic the Gathering Hall of Fame, which I have a feeling is also in this person's future at some point. And also my co-host of the game podcast, Jerry Thompson. Hello, Jerry. How are you today? I'm out. I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you weren't going to like that intro. You you don't like when I heap praise on you like that. The G in head games. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll just get past it. How are y'all doing? (laughs) Good, good. Yeah, I I think we're doing great. We're happy to have you. I'm glad we got to kind of get back to our magic the gathering roots here but i also want to assure our listeners if you're not a magic the gathering player and i know there's a lot of you who come to the show every week and and participate and really enjoy what we have to offer you're going to be fine here don't worry we're not getting into the weeds of magic the gathering we are instead talking about preparation for a big competition 
And I also want to talk a little bit about the aftermath of a big competition. And we thought, why not have Jerry on? Because you're coming from the Pro Tour, right, Jerry? You just got back uh, a few days ago, correct? Yeah, I was out of town for about 11 days. And I'm I'm currently in sort of like the detox state where I need a, lo- a lot of rest. I've been interacting with a lot of humans for a very long time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm mostly back to normal. It's It's been about three days at this point. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're recovering nicely. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the recovery process from uh, a big event like this. I just want to, again, being conscientious of our non-magic listeners, I want to explain what the Pro Tour is because some of you may not know. Essentially, the highest level of competition for Magic the Gathering culminates in uh, about a quarterly Pro Tour. That changes. Uh, sometimes there's more than four Pro Tours in a season, but it's every few months you get to participate in these Pro Tours. They are the highest prestige events in Magic the Gathering. They are the highest payout events in Magic the Gathering. It's still kind of a small amount of money, unfortunately, but they, they are as big as the game gets and they're invite only. So you have to have qualified via past performances or you, know, you can win one-off tournaments that get you the chance to play, but it, it's the apex of the game. There, there's no higher level of competition, uh, no higher level of achievement than being on the Pro Tour. So having said that, we're going to get into what it looks like when you're preparing for an event that is the apex of competition, that is super meaningful. Because so much of a Magic player's performance is dictated by how they perform in this one tournament. It's so important. It sets the stage for the rest of your year, your earning potential. Uh, It sets the stage for your next years because there's what's called a player's club. So past performance leads you to more qualifications and more opportunities. So this is everything. The Pro Tour is everything. I think it's uh, important to note too, like it's not just a a one day or like a one match thing. Like if you're making day two or then you make top eight, like this is potentially up to three days straight of competition. Right. And that's an extremely important distinction because stamina comes into things as well. And that's kind of where we want to start our discussion is how you approach when you have this, first of all, important, second of all, long tournament that you're preparing for. What does your week leading up to that tournament need to look like? How can you optimize your approach? And Jerry, why don't you just start by sharing a little bit with, in general, it doesn't have to be something you always do, but in general, how do you set yourself up to prepare for that week leading into the Pro Tour? Uh, Do you isolate yourself? Do you get together with a group of people? What's your general approach? A lot of how people approach this specific thing comes down to like goals and preferences a lot of the time. I think that there are many people who have full-time jobs while also doing this, or they have other responsibilities, so they can't necessarily dedicate all that time just to preparing for this one event because it's it's a big ask, you know? Sure. So for me, it, it's changed over the course of my career and everything, but now I am generally doing something along the lines of getting together with uh, a team of people for a week or two weeks, depending on how much time people can spare. And if we're not meeting in real life, at the very least, we're uh, sharing ideas and trying to help each other prepare online and everything. So we'll have uh, some sort of Facebook group and be texting people and stuff like that. Uh, So yes, it is a very big time commitment. And uh, a lot of the time, you know, people's goal is to, to do as well as they possibly can, because as you mentioned, this this is kind of it. You get four chances a year and these things matter a lot compared to the smaller events that, you know, happen intermittently throughout the year. So this is kind of it and it's a big deal and people try to treat it that way. I think that everyone is just kind of bad at it, though. <laughs> well, I got I to gotta push you on that. Yeah. Why do you think people are so bad at preparing for these tournaments? Well, what do, is, what do they do wrong? Magic is fun, right? So mm-hmm. it's really difficult to actually treat it like a job. No one's really in charge. So for the most part, you're just kind of getting together and hanging out with your friends, kind of under the guise of preparing for this big event. And I'm not sure if there is a better way to do it. I mean, I know that I personally would not like being ordered around and being told to go prepare this specific act like aspect of the tournament and everything, you know, I'm, I want to do my own thing and go at my own pace. And sometimes that means 
just like napping for three hours in the middle of the day and going out, <laughs> going out to lunches and hanging out with friends and stuff. So yeah, people tend to say that they are putting in the work and doing the effort, but I, I don't think that they're doing the best job of it. And I don't think that their processes are mostly, you know, well-refined or anything. I think they just kind of do their thing without a whole lot of planning to it. And it's just generally a pretty big mistake. Cause there's, there's not like, coaches or staff or like is there any type of hierarchy at these things no i mean on certain teams there's there's usually a person or two who others will look to and follow because they are the most knowledgeable or uh they've been doing this the longest time or whatever but no one is ordering anyone around or no one is even coaching and one of the things that you see specifically with these magic teams is that no one is is really there to help each other. It's like you get these groups of 20 people together and everyone joins the group to try and hope that they will do better, like they themselves. But very rarely do you see someone who's like, okay, I'm prepared, I'm confident, let's see if you know someone else is struggling with this aspect of the tournament that's coming up. No one does that. So it's more like I'm joining to hope that I'm going to get some brilliant idea or secret from someone else and I'm and it sounds like people don't really go into it thinking they're the person with that brilliant idea no but if you do end up having some brilliant idea during this preparation then you get the street cred and people will want to continue (laughs) working with you you know Jonathan I'm sure you must have a take on this kind of formless I don't know if unorganized is quite fair because there there probably is some organizational systems in place but it's certainly looser than I bet you've seen in other esports and one of the parallels that comes to mind when you're talking about this kind of period of intense focus and kind of isolation because I think that is what's going on to some extent. You really want to be working with a bunch of other Magic players and obviously breaks are built into the system, but mostly focused entirely on Magic to the extent you can do so. You know, all your vocabulary and vernacular turns to Magic. Each meal is filled with discussions of Magic things. Like everything becomes about Magic. And it calls to me League of Legends boot camping. Mm. Uh, we know that a lot of uh, top European and NA teams prior to Worlds, say, they usually go to Korea and they boot camp for either a week or two weeks. First of all, why don't you tell us what you know about the process of boot camping in those esports and then kind of contrast and compare their approach to what you're hearing from Jerry about what Magic players do in that spot. Yeah. Blanket feeling is I hate it, (laughs) but part of that comes from just like anytime I'm asked to start working with a team, they're like, let's get a boot camp. And all that says to me is they want a short-term dose and they hope that that dose of whatever concentrated practice is going to be some form of like magic wand. And despite whatever happened in the like other 50 to 51 weeks of the year, like this one or two weeks is is just going to make everything click. And sometimes you see people get results as a like because they got together for a week or two, but I don't know. Like for me, it's frustrating because I think it's the sustained growth over time that leads to longest lasting or like better results. And generally, that's a way to attempt to shortcut it. Yeah, that makes sense. You're looking for the the quickest possible answer. And I mean, like you said, there can be returns from this bootcamp process, but probably these teams would benefit more from looking at what they could do in a broader sense, how they could improve their practice over time. And I get the sense that that probably applies to Magic players as well. What do you think about Jerry's point that people seem to be very much there for themselves? There's kind of a a lack of team mentality. Is that just a consequence of the way Magic is set up? Because it's not a team sport. For the most part, there's sometimes team events. But for the most part, there's a much higher emphasis on individual accolades. There is like a team series, but you're not super incentivized to work super closely with your team and it's kind of just like a culmination of individual performances more than a team performance thing and that's yeah. the nature of magic you know it's it's hard to really assign team goals to an individual sport for the most part yeah so i think it's systemic in in a lot of the sense something that comes to mind though is like right now we're in the middle of the world chess championship 
in case y'all aren't aware. So we have American who briefly went to Italy and he's back in America. So we're calling him Amer- like he's representing America. Uh, Caruana is like challenging the longtime pro or longtime world champion, like the best chess player ever, arguably. And we had no idea like what that prep looks like as like a non grandmaster, but a, a tape got leaked. It's like some minor controversy, but like you had an insight into how his team was preparing. And so here's a one on one competition to be the best in the world. And like seemingly no one else gets kickback for it and there was a team of grandmaster chess players just hanging out in st louis with caruana like making sure he he got prepped for that event i'm curious like magic does have other events that not everyone gets to go to like worlds comes to mind like do teams help out the people that are attending those sometimes but it's kind of out of convenience like no one is going to carve time out of their schedule or you know, certainly fly across the country to be there in person and help them Mm. prep. It might just be like, well, I've been working on this thing. Here are the things that I know and good luck. Like, that's it. Interesting. So I think the only time I've really seen any kind of hard commitment from teams where there's nothing left for individuals to gain, I will say that when someone makes a top eight of a pro tour, most teams seem to shift into high gear and helping that person prepare for their top eight matchups Mm-hmm. testing various strategies and you know really getting an understanding of the matchup that's the one instance in magic where i i think the team aspect of things gets amped up a little bit is that fair jerry has that been your experience yeah definitely i mean i i, I would love to be able to say like oh yeah you know this is the stuff where it really matters and it's nice that everyone is just willing to be selfless and come together and help but Realistically, it's because they're around, they like magic, their tournament is over, (laughs) and as is tradition, if someone on your team makes top eight, they buy the rest of the team dinner. So... You're, so you're, they're just in it for the dinner, you're saying. You're, you're sort of obligated. Well, it's it's generally a nice dinner, you know? We're not going to McDonald's or anything. Sure, yeah. sure. So it, it is it is out of convenience, for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of this is systemic. There's, there's a lot of issues with professional magic that lead to these kind of hyper self-interested approaches and the fact that there isn't a lot of money inherent in the game and that people do tend to not singularly pursue the game. It's usually in conjunction with something else, especially content creation. Content creation is incredibly important to the lifeblood of professional magic and where a lot of the money comes from. So priorities are kind of in a weird place, uh, which complicates things a little bit. Like I know, so part of it, like obviously, I'll practice playing various strategies against each other. Um, in other sports competitions, we see like VOD review or like tape review. Like, is there any amount of watching either streams or what other people have been up to and discussing that at all, or is it all just like attempting to play? I do that a lot because I want to stay informed on what's going on around me and I don't necessarily want to have the results of the things that we've learned really dictate what decisions I'm going to be mm. making because you just end up getting sort of inbred. And so, yeah, there, there are a lot of outside sources that you can draw information from for magic, which I think is really helpful. And some people basically don't count those results very much because they're just like, well, we're playing on the pro tour, right? Like we're some of the best players. Obviously what we come up with is going to be better than what anyone else does. And I think that that tends to lead to some pretty poor results. Jerry, how would you say you split your preparation time? If we're looking at uh, ratios of actual task time. So either playing magic or kind of figuring out configurations of decks you want to play versus study time, which I would slot, you know, what you're talking about, seeing what other people are doing, reading magic articles, debating theories. What's your general division as far as actually doing the task? So I try to multitask as best I can. So I'll often be playing while also tabbing over to an article or something or watching a stream. But Study time is kind of my favorite. I generally enjoy thinking about the game itself or talking about the game more than I enjoy actually playing because at this point I've been playing for 17 years competitively, give or take. 
So that that's a long time. And I, I agree with what Jonathan said, where the boot camping isn't necessarily effective because you have to make sure that you're staying sharp just in general. It's not like you can quit for three months, come back <laughs> and then just pick it up, play for a week and you're you're at tip top shape. Right. Like that's just not going to happen. So I try and remain sharp throughout the year. And then rather than everything comes down to like this small little crunch time, it's like, OK, well, I understand how you know, the, the format looks and uh, what matters and everything, how these these decks match up against each other. And then I'll just try and like theory craft and figure it out from there because it is it is mostly a puzzle and there are diminishing returns for things that you can learn while playing, especially if you are trying to maintain that high level of play. So mostly it is just theory thinking about what other people are going to do and how you can kind of anticipate that and react to it. I think this varies so dramatically from endeavor to endeavor, but my instinct, and this is just from participating in competition and hearing people talk and you know being around it for many years, my instinct is that people over-prioritize doing the task that they're going to be doing at the competition. So playing games of magic figure skating too much before you're actually going to do your figure skating routine, whatever it is. I, I get the sense that people spend too much time doing that and not enough time thinking about it. Jonathan, what's been your experience working with athletes? Is my point valid or am I just, you know, extending my own experiences to other people? I think it is for some people. I think in this case, like the way it, it shapes for me, if we were to look at how Jerry's describing prep and like taking it to other esports or, or sports, um, like there are people who don't work on their mechanics in like League of Legends as much as they should individually. And then they like expect those to develop while they're scrimmaging when really scrimmaging and or just time with the team in general should be on that like theory strategy, the stuff you can't do on your own. And, and it sounds like these pro meetups, like you're in a room of other people who are very smart at magic it feels like some of the best use of that time would be to like smack those brains against each other and like, and, and see what kind of theory comes out of it. So it wouldn't surprise me if that, that wasn't prioritized well, like across other performers. Yeah. It's interesting to see how everyone has their own kind of ways of practicing. And honestly, it could differ from person to person. Maybe some mm -hmm. people just need to play a bunch of games and that's how they get to a, a place of comfort. And that's more important to them than anything else. I think you should certainly trust yourself, but also it's kind of like one of those trust but verify situations. Make sure you're not just playing a bunch of games because you love playing games and you're telling yourself, this is how I get better, when in actuality, you would benefit from doing more study or, or doing more discussion. Or at least just be trying to learn while you're playing the games. Yeah. Sure. And be actively thinking about various things instead of just going through the motions. I mean, I, I do think that with Magic specifically, there are a lot of players who are very talented and do have a lot of accolades who mostly play Magic kind of through muscle memory. Mm -hmm. And you, you'll you ask them to explain a play or a thing that they did, and they just can't really tell you, you know? Yeah. But they I just, have... I just they, did it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I did it because it was correct. Duh. And it's just <laughs> like, well, what the hell? You know, how am I supposed to learn from that? It's like, you know, people learn in different ways. So I think that that's really important to keep in mind too. Is there like any amount of documentation? Because I think the other thing is people passively playing or practicing anything, but it, it sounds like it makes sense in magic too, is like you just are hoping that osmosis or something is going to give you this learning and like you don't actually take record of what's working or what you did right, what you did wrong. There are spreadsheets for matchup results, right? So you can go back and look at how this deck did or whatever. And I I do like getting all these people in a room, you know, 10, 15, 20 people, because information disseminates very quickly throughout a room, right? If, if something mm -hmm. is going on on the other side of the room and someone learns something, it's like you're, you're probably going to overhear that conversation. But from what I've been doing recently, which is just kind of testing online, not really in person, and then talking to people through Facebook and stuff, you just don't get a, a broader scope of what other people have experienced. And mm -hmm. I think that getting the people in the same room together goes way further than just tracking results, like keeping spreadsheets and stuff. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. This has got to be the theory behind the proliferation of gaming houses, right? It's just like keeping these people in the same vicinity assures that 
I, I mean, there's a lot of smaller stuff, like it assures they're going to get to practice on time and assures you can mm-hmm. work on their fitness and sleep routines and things like that. But it also assures that information is being disseminated as quickly and efficiently as possible, which is a big part of the puzzle when you're trying to get everyone on the same page. If they're not on the same playing field, if they're not getting the same pieces of information, it's, it's very hard to get clarity with decision making, especially when you need to work as a team. Yeah, the evolution of that is now a lot of teams that actually have resources have a practice facility or like mm-hmm. an off, a quote unquote office. And so I, I think they, they've been able to do that now that they have larger support staffs that they don't have to worry that their teammates are going to wake up, get food and like do all those things because they like pay chefs and, and like physical trainers. But then they like still have that work environment where it's, it's their office, but it's really just like their scrim room or where they solo queue and all that kind of stuff. I imagine like in a dream world where magic has these same resources, like you, if you saw a team do that, they would have results. Yeah. I wish, I mean, I don't know if it's a lack of incentives or gumption, but I would love to see a team take this hyper serious approach to magic and, you know, have these kind of creature comforts in place and just the infrastructure to be able to really maximize training and just see what it did for results. See if it led to a dominant pro team, you know, the likes of which we've never seen because it's just not something we've been able to experiment with really in large part because the incentive, aka money, is not there to encourage that kind of experimentation. Okay. So I I think that mostly wraps up what I want to say about the preparation slash buildup period in the week or so leading up to the tournament. I think I want to shift gears now to talking about the actual day of the event. And in the case of something like the Pro Tour, we talked about being multi-day, so this will apply across the two or three day span. But Jerry, do you want to talk a little bit about how you approach quote unquote game day? Like, is there anything different you do? Is there anything you try to be very deliberate about? Or is it just kind of like business as usual, this is another day for me and I'm, I'm not really looking to change anything. Well, I'm, I'm definitely looking to change things. If I, I would just be completely ignorant if I was like, yeah, my routine is perfect, you know? <laughs> sure. I, I am smart enough to realize that I'm doing a bunch of stuff wrong, right? And <laughs> it is great that this podcast exists. So, you know, a lot of it is, okay, yeah, I knew that. I knew that I was doing that wrong and like, how do I actually go through with this and, and change it? But Magic is weird because it involves a lot of traveling. So there's jet lag and time zone issues and stuff like that. Sometimes it works to my benefit where normally I'll stay up till four and wake up at like nine or 10 and then maybe have a nap in the middle of the day or something. And maybe the time zone just makes it so I'm I'm waking up at or like going to bed at, you know, midnight local time or whatever. And I obviously getting a good night's rest helps a lot, but for various reasons. I don't think I am particularly good at sleeping. I don't think I sleep very well. And I'm sure there are a lot of things that are contributing to that. And I can't fall asleep on command. You know, I'm, I'm so used to in my everyday life, just staying up until I'm tired. Right. So how, how do I actually shift that going into the tournament? Yeah. Well, one of the points I really want to make as it goes to day of preparation is that I don't know that dramatic changes the day of really benefit you. Like if you've lived your whole life doing this approach to sleep, the time to say, okay, I have a strict nine o'clock bedtime. (laughs) It's not the day of the tournament. It was a month and a half ago, two months. It was a progressive change you should have been making over time. But I do the same thing. I've had the exact same struggles with my pro tour preparation as I show up there my sleep schedule is all jacked up. I have no idea if I'm coming or going. And the thing I always battle with is when I'm having that difficulty sleeping, do I look for ways to aid my sleep? You know, do I take NyQuil or sleep aids or something like that to just assure I get that rest? But then I wake up the next morning and I don't really feel a hundred percent. And I never know how to balance those two things. It's always a tricky, tricky question for me to answer. Well, realistically, you just have to be training yourself to be ready for competition basically every day, right? Like if if you decide that you're supposed to go to bed at 9 p.m., well, maybe you're supposed to be going to bed at 9 p.m. every night, but that's just so regimented that I I can't foresee doing that 
every single day of my normal life because these competitions are so few and far between, at least for the pro tours. Yeah, I agree with like the, the radical change would not be something I recommend. And I don't even know that has to be as much as like you go to sleep at the same hour every day, especially like for for you, for I mean, like this is one of the battles when we discuss like Brian's habits is y'all have a more flexible schedule on your day to day most of the time. So it's like that regimen isn't part of it, but just knowing like the amount that makes most sense and then like before competition trying to adjust for that but yeah i don't think adding nightcore or anything to like force the function is is going to give you any good effects like at all probably that's ultimately where i usually come out on the question and then you know i stumble to the pro tour with two hours of sleep or something (laughs) silly like that and regret not having set myself up for success months ago and i would say probably i do the uh, I won't say I do the exactly the same thing because obviously circumstances are very different, but nutrition is another thing that I don't usually take steps to actively manage. You know, I'll do things like keeping snacks in my backpack and I try and be thoughtful about the snacks I'm going to have, you know, good brain food, things like that. Not a lot of sugar stuff, almonds, sometimes cliff bars. If I think I'm going to need a, a quick boost, I can use something like that. Keeping my caffeine intake regulated appropriately, make sure it's neither higher nor lower than what I usually consume uh, is usually on my to-do list. Do you ever give that any thought, Jerry, when you're heading into like a pro tour type event? Because we know how difficult it can be to just like appropriately feed yourself at these things. The <laughs> infrastructure is not there for some reason. Right. I I don't actively make steps to try and correct it, but it is a thing that I'm very conscientious of where I will try and bring snacks because I know that we probably don't have a whole lot of time to grab food. And where is there even to get food around here? Because we're just we're dropped in some convention center in the middle of a city that may or may not have adequate food options available, you know, so right. uh, there, there are days where I just don't eat or at least I'll eat at the end of the day when everything is done and everything. But d- over the course of the the first day of the tournament, it's it's not uncommon for me to just not eat. Uh, you're gonna get. You're about to get yelled at by Jonathan, just so you know. So <laughs> I, I will hand it Hit over me. to Let's him. Let's go. Uh, I don't know if I even have it in me to yell. No, it's just like it's not. It's it's one of those like I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. <laughs> right. No eating. Uh, eating makes me sleepy. Interesting. Like eating and anything obvi- or well, obviously it has a lot to do with the type of garbage that I do eat. <laughs> right. Okay. That's that's the answer. But but again, you know, I'm, it's that's. I, I eat a lot of like bad carbs and sugars and, and whatnot, a lot of bread. And after I just smash a lot of bread, I just want to take a nap, you know? Yeah. Well, like I won't knock carbs. I think the sugars are more what leads to the uh, like unsustainable energy crash. Like they feel good for a bit and then there is that crash after. Like for me, for long day events, I'll just pack like a literal box of granola bars and if i know i'm not gonna like stop and get lunch and then if there's like a round that ends early i'll attempt to eat as close to real food as i can but i mean convention centers are awful how's your water intake it varies i i will generally have like four red bulls per day and maybe maybe <laughs> you're a about soda. to yell that again no no no, no. And <laughs> it's then, gonna happen and then you know sometimes i'll have a water bottle right okay. and this is one of those things where I know that I think like I would be good at if I just took a, a few more steps towards it, where if I made sure to always have a water bottle around me and there, I knew where to get like cold, delicious water, I would drink the water because it is it is very good. But when I'm just thinking about, oh, man, like I want something to drink, I will just go to a soda machine and pay the four dollars for a convention center soda. Think how much money you would save. <laughs> No, I don't know. Just buy a water bottle. Like that, that's such a crappy excuse. <laughs> oh, no, I have plenty. It's just whether or not I actually remember to include it into the routine of things that I pack. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't, you know. I think, I mean, my own experience with water intake is it's kind of like the same lazy approach you're describing here is that I'm very good about getting appropriate water when it's made easy for me mm-hmm. when I have my water bottle in hand. You know, what's interesting is that my wife doesn't particularly care for super cold water. So we have like a large Brita filter, which was usually in our fridge. And she's like, you know, what? I don't want this in the fridge anymore. I just want this on the counter. And I'm drinking way more water because I like walk through the kitchen and it's right there in front of my stupid face. And I'm like, oh yeah, I like water and <laughs> I have a glass. 
Um, but just that small step making it more available has definitely increased my water intake. And, you know, this is all excuse making. It's something that we can make a priority and would benefit from making it a priority. Jonathan, what specifically do you have to say about Jerry's four Red Bull per day? Day of I, tournament. I, I know that Jerry intake. drinks Red Bull, so that's what I have to say about it. I'm, uh, I'm like, freaking one right now. It's the way you are. Well, it's what it's four o'clock for you right now. Um, yeah, like I think Jerry knows what I would say about it. Like it creates an energy crash. Like the chemicals aren't great in it. And if he were to get himself off Red Bull and just like drink water, it it would probably have a more consistent energy level and not blame food for the reason why he feels tired randomly throughout a day of competition when he has four Red Bulls. The food thing has made me sleepy well before I ever started drinking Red Bull. So like, let's not blame the Red Bull for me (laughs) getting sleepy. It is the consistent influx of Red Bull that keeps me awake. (laughs) Red Bull's the hero here. I don't know if you got the memo, but Red Bull's the champion of the story. I love the taste of Red Bull, but I've had numerous players who are also lovers of Red Bull. And like one of the first things I do when I start working with a new team is do my best to like eradicate soda or soda like products. Cause it just, it's an inconsistent amount of energy and over like a longer duration competition, like you want to be able to have as much control as possible. And you're basically just like rolling the dice when the substance is going to wear off in the terms of like, maybe it's mid match and like, there's a big decision that you have to make. And like, you don't recognize this because we don't know when we're tired or like if it's affecting things, but then like, it's, it's just like a inconsistency. It's not steady, but you what, love what if I'm drinking? What if I'm drinking sugar free? Does that help? <laughs> that is like a, a mild improvement. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll give you like a portion of a high five for it. Hell yeah. <laughs> I, I'm debating whether I want to share this story because it's such hearsay. I'm going to do it anyway, though. This okay. isn't going to be like the roommate story. I'm actually going to share this one. Someone okay. told me they had a friend who worked with some government agency. I, I want to say it's the NSA, but I'm not 100% sure. And basically, a, as part of like government work, they were just analyzing various energy substances. And one of the ones they analyzed was taurine. And you know they, they analyzed caffeine and they analyzed all these different things, which could theoretically be used for energy purposes. And what they had to say about taurine was that it does something. We don't know what, but it definitely does something. And that was the summation of the read <laughs> on taurine. <laughs> and like I said, this is some really drastic hearsay right now, but I always thought that story was pretty funny because I mean, so many of us use taurine now and it's not really super clear what it's doing. Uh, I don't think there's as much information on taurine as there is on caffeine. So, Well, I have performed much better in the last six years since I've started drinking Red Bull, it's got to be the taurine, right? It's not because I got better or anything. (laughs) Yeah, you figured it out. The takeaway of how to become a successful magic pro is sugar-free Red Bull. (laughs) There's only one hero and it's Red Bull. Well, I'm drinking the Red Bull with sugar right now. Oh, okay. I was just asking. (laughs) Oh. Uh, (laughs) That was a theoretical improvement. the, The best one is probably like Red Bull Zero because it actually doesn't have sugar, but the the okay. actual best option is to not drink energy drinks. Black coffee, black tea, green tea, white tea. I mean, whatever tea you want, just no sugar. It's bad. How am I supposed to get green tea in the middle of a convention center? You bring it. You'd have to bring it. Yeah. I, I mean, I had this that's, problem at that's GP That's so New much work. My brother brought a case of Trader Joe's green tea to the tournament for me because I knew otherwise I would yeah. not be able to get it. How much work do you put into the deck you bring? Not enough. <laughs> but probably considerably more than your nutrition. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Th- there's always room for improvement when it comes to this stuff. And, you know, we're our own worst enemy most of the time. Moving on to some other game day type stuff. Do you deal with any nerves or kind of anxiety when you're in the middle of competition, Jerry? And if you do, do you have anything you use to kind of combat uh, those things? Normally, I just battle through it. Uh, This hasn't happened for me in Magic specifically in quite some time because I'm used to it. Like this, this is Mm. just kind of like home for me. 
So when I have branched out into other games and played tournaments in other games, that's when the nerves hit me, even though Mm. I'm just like, oh, this is nothing. I'm here for fun. It's not a big deal, but I'm just uncomfortable and that's it. And I don't I don't know how to deal with that other than just, you know, trying to do do my thing, do what I do. And then hopefully it goes away. Like when you went to you went to DreamHack recently, right? Play a different game. Like, did you experience it there? Uh, A little bit. It, it, It went away a lot quicker. I don't really know why exactly, but yeah, it was I was playing on a laptop instead of with physical cards, and I'm playing this game where I, I don't have any tournament success or accolades or whatever, and it's not the game that I focus on. So yeah, I was I was just nervous. I felt uncomfortable, and yeah, it was just weird. When you say uncomfortable, like physically, what is nervous like manifest for you? This could have something to do with, you know, nutrition and stuff, right? But it's just like, you know, just kind of like butterflies in my stomach or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, this this general sense of unease and, yeah, just being nervous a little bit, like maybe my hands shake a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually probably not nutrition. Um, I think it's a consistent experience. Like the we feel butterflies because like whatever's going on, our brain interprets as a threat. And so fight or flight kicks in and butterflies is really just our body pulling blood away from digestion. Cause if we're going to like fight a lion, we want our fists to work. Right. I, d- I did listen to this episode. So I remember this now. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> that was a test. <laughs> yeah. So like, did you used to experience that with magic and now it's just like, you've done it so often that you kind of like skip that, that step. Yeah. I, I would go to smaller tournaments when I just started and I, I didn't really feel it. And then certainly the first time I played in a pro tour, the first few times I played in a pro tour, it, it used to hit me before round one, basically every time. Hmm. And then I had played in enough of them where I, I just didn't really put them on a pedestal anymore. It was just like, OK, like I'm I'm here. I belong here. This is just an, another day at the office for me. It's it's no big deal. And I think stopping to put the tournament itself on a pedestal is was like a pretty big step for me. Mm. So it's, it's just another like it's a stack of 60 cards. It's the same sticky 60 cards you were practicing with earlier this week. Like it doesn't matter that you're at the PT. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of it is just I'm going to play in more of these. It's not like this is any anything special necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, there, there are going to be plenty of these. And there's no reason for me to treat this specific tournament special or anything, even though it is a big deal. All right, I want to move on to kind of the last thing I want to touch on here in this day of section. And this won't apply to every competition, but I think it applies to a lot of competition, Mm -hmm. uh, especially if you stretch the definition of what we're talking about here. But it's downtime. In Magic, you play your match. You then have to wait for every other set of players in the room to play their match before you move to your next match. And a lot of times there's 30, 40 minutes between matches before you're able to play your next match. And I think there's similarities really in all competitions, even when you go to like typical team sports, you know, there's times when you're on the bench in basketball, or if you're playing baseball, you're waiting for your chance to hit. So I just wanted to talk about downtime the day of the event. Jerry, how do you handle your downtime at magic tournaments? Do you use it to think about the match you just played? Uh, Are you still, you know, in a strategic place or do you use it to decompress and get ready for the next round? It depends on what type of tournament I'm at. If you want to keep talking about uh, pro tour type of stuff, like, again, I'm not the best example, but uh, I will go out and have a cigarette or three in between rounds. Can you yell that again? No, no. uh, I don't know. Just the the cigarette helps, like, kind of keep me level. And I know that if I were just drinking water and eating right and not having a bunch of caffeine, I would probably just be normally level. But Mm -hmm. given the circumstances that I'm working with now. Yeah. It, it just kind of levels me out. That's just sort of my habit or whatever for decompressing after a round. And there are some other fine gentlemen who also smoke. So then I'll just discuss whatever comes up with them. And sometimes it's me thinking about a match or maybe I'll ask someone about a, a play that happened or, you know, we'll be gossiping and just like telling stories and stuff. And then pairings go up and it's go time. Mm-hmm. And 
if if I'm like the first one done, there's no one else out there, then yeah, maybe I'll play some game on my phone or uh, check Twitter or whatever, just like anything to kind of keep my mind occupied. It's funny that if you were to replace smoking with just like X, <laughs> right? It, just like random other thing. This sounds like an awesome set of behaviors. Like it's really good to like be able to take a moment and just yeah. stop and reset and reflect a little bit and get back to the place you were before you played the last round. Like that sounds super, super positive. And this is not an endorsement of using Jerry's technique here. I'm, I'm not telling listeners to go smoke between rounds. I think that's a very bad idea, but there's a lot of positivity in what Jerry's saying. And, and I think that if you were to kind of get this routine, something you did in every single instance of downtime, something that really got you back to your prepared state, that's very positive. That's a very positive approach to, to using your downtime to its maximum potential. I think it's great that we waited 14 episodes to have you on because at this point, Brian is just so well trained that he just <laughs> he just gets at you for all of these behaviors and I don't have to. <laughs> I'm curious, like, do you ever between rounds watch other matches like if you finish early or do you generally turn magic off? Uh, I, I basically never turn magic off. It is it is a thing that okay. it's a thing that I really like and I really enjoy and I don't ever really get sick of it or burned out or anything. And I'm constantly trying to learn and improve. So I, I think as soon as I finish a match, my brain is just like, go have a cigarette. And then if say I have like 30 minutes before the next round, I'll often like come in, chat with people and maybe walk around, see if, if there's like a, an interesting match being played between you know two well-known people or whatever i'll check that out mm -hmm. and then maybe go out for another cigarette before the, the pairings actually go up yeah I, I think i think there's a lot of positive there and a lot of negative there to take away in, in equal measure <laughs> smoking um, smoking is bad kids it, it is bad yes. i'll take the red bull sponsorship I, I don't really want like a camel sponsorship <laughs> that's good that's that's good for your brand i, I like being thoughtful about it me personally, my downtime is kind of underutilized, I would say. I, I watch a lot of magic. I, I like watching magic. A, mm. a lot of the same things Jerry is talking about apply to me. I generally think about magic all the time, and it's, it's very ingrained in what I do. So that's one activity that I do partake in. But a lot of it, I, I find boredom in the downtime. I kind of want to get to the next thing. A lot of the times I want to play my next round. A lot of that is because I love magic and something I enjoy doing and I want to know the outcome before it happens. But I, I think I could do more with my time is my point. I think I could have a better routine to get me back to square one. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what that consists of for me, but it's something I want to give a little bit more thought. And, you know, if a listener has a routine that they really like, a non-smoking one would be ideal. But if, if a listener <laughs> wants to put forth a good routine that they use to kind of do what Jerry's describing and get to a good place for your next round, uh, I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear how people approach the situation. I don't understand boredom. How does that happen? <laughs> I don't, I seriously don't get bored. There's always so much. Something to do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. And I guess boredom isn't fair. It's, it's more like anxious. Because you're right, I could always go uh -huh. to my phone or a lot of times I'll bring, you know, either my Switch or my Vita with me to an event and I can always do that. You're right. I've pretty much given up on boredom as well. But it is like, I like playing tournament magic. Like I, I wanted, I, I wish there was more magic mm -hmm. being played at a tournament is my point. Like I realize that's impossible because the entirety of the round needs to finish. But if I could finish one match and take a five minute reset and move to my next match over and over and over, that would be ideal for me. I, yeah. I would like that approach to the game. And, and that's a clearer reflection of what I'm talking about more than, than boredom. I think that was probably some imprecise language on my part. So the downtime is just kind of a chore for you. Yeah, that's how I would look at it. I, I want to be doing the thing I'm there to do, the thing I flew across the country to do or prepared for, you know, however many weeks to do that. That's what I want to be engaged in in the moment. Mine's so variable. And I, I think that's something to consider for what you do with it. Like if we think of magic as the context and then I can think of ways this applies to other competitions I do too. But like if my, if I just had a very intense round and I, I kind of do it to myself sometimes with the types of decks I play. There are some rounds where I just need to turn my brain off. And that's what I know is going to get me 
back to being able to play again in however many minutes. And then there's other rounds where like I have an abundance of energy and I want to like talk to other people. And I see it in hockey too. There's some shifts where I like want to come off the ice and talk about the last minute and a half, two minutes, whatever we were on the ice for. And then there's others where like it was really intense and maybe the game's really tense. And I know that what's going to get me ready for my next shift is to just like shut my brain off for a bit and watch whoever's on the ice right now. Do you make that determination consciously? I think in the beginning stages of any given competition, like when I first started playing hockey, I wasn't, I had to be like deliberately aware of it. Mm -hmm. I think it was similar with tournament magic, but now it's just like sometimes I'm aware aware of it in the moment and sometimes my friends just like they are aware also and will respond accordingly. Right. So maybe you're giving out like nonverbal cues or something, which are letting them know, look, yeah. I just need to <laughs> yeah. be by myself right now. My brain is actually not working right now. Like, <laughs> please step right. away. Yeah. I mean, because it's interesting, right? Like we can either, there's two ways to approach it where you are being very inwardly focused and sitting down with yourself and saying, okay, me, what do you need right now to get back to the place where you're the <laughs> optimal competitor? And the other where you just let your you go about their business and see where it takes you. And it might take you to conversation mm-hmm. or it might take you wandering away from everyone. And I guess from my perspective, I'm trying to understand how actively I should be engaging with this process of assessing what I need on a round-to-round basis. I think the active part, like if we think magic and why magic, it's just like the the typical tournament, like even the PT, like you have a few hundred people there. Like there's so many people that are sharing this downtime and each of them has different goals, priorities, like things that they want to do with their time that I think what I see most often that people could be more active about is letting other people know that what they're doing is like not what you need right now. Mm. Like if you need time to yourself to recharge, like it, it just seems like people are hesitant to like, tell other people like, Hey, I I really don't want to talk about the last round. Like I need to go like just recharge for 10 minutes, whatever. Like I think people know what they need at times, but then they don't actually take steps to do it. That's funny because I do do that. I mean, I I can hear myself having told people that before. I always feel bad about it. I don't know why. (laughs) Just like if I tell someone, I don't want to talk right now. I feel guilty every time I say something like that, but I do do it. And I guess I hadn't realized I was actually taking assessment of what my brain needed to get back to a competitive space. Um, It was something I was doing more subconsciously than consciously, but good job me in getting back to where you needed to be and (laughs) acting appropriately to get there. Um, Okay. I think that's going to wrap up day of, I want to just real quick, move on to the post event kind of decompression stage that Jerry talked about that he's in right now. One thing I wanted to emphasize in this decompression stage, and I want to hear what your approach to this process is like, Jerry. I think it's super important when we end a competition that we make sure we both consider what we did right and what we did wrong in equal measure. Because in any competition, there's going to be both failures and achievements. And it's super important for us to get the most out of any competition to improve as we head to our next competition to keep those kind of equally balanced. Look at what we did well and what we did wrong and and really use them as a roadmap to our next competition. Is this something you engage in, Jerry? Is it something that kind of maybe comes naturally for you? You're just always updating your process and always thinking about what you could do better? Or is it something that you consciously, do you sit down, say, and make a list of, I could have done this or I could have done that? What's your relationship like with this kind of decompression period and looking towards the next tournament? It is mostly a constant state for me because even in the middle of competition, if I make a mistake or if I learn something, I I will make it a point to be like, okay, don't do that again or file that away for later and maybe make a note of it on my phone or something. But I'm also very fortunate that I make content about magic for a living. And a (laughs) lot of the time after uh, a competition, I just get to write an article and it's it's free form. I get to write about whatever I want. Sometimes it's about uh, the deck that I played and what I learned and and what you're what you should be doing next week. And sometimes it is just about like, okay, forget about what I did, because what I did was heinous. 
And this is what you should be doing based on the things that I learned. So I have this sort of process already just ingrained in me. And like, that's how I get my paycheck, you know? Uh, so I, I really enjoy writing and it was something that I put off for a very long time, but I think a lot of people could actually benefit it too, or benefit from it too, whether or not you're, you know, just writing for yourself or sharing for other competitors or to your teammates or whatever. I think it's very helpful. Jonathan, your take. I'm curious before you started writing content, like I got back to magic only recently, so I don't know how far back your content went in the 17 years you mentioned, but like, was this a process you did before you were writing content? Uh, so I've been writing consistently for 10 years and in okay. the, the seven year period before that I had some like sporadic writing gigs, I guess. And occasionally I would even just post tournament reports to Facebook or something when, when there was mm. a weekend that I felt particularly compelled to share the story about, you know, but for the most part, it was just an internal process with me where there are, mm -hmm. there are things that I know that I don't know. Right. So it's whenever I sit down to practice there, I will often have a mental checklist of things to figure out. And after an event, there's generally a huge intake of information because you get to see what all these other people or teams did and how the tournament played out and uh, whether or not you need to question all the things that you thought you knew or not. I don't necessarily sit down and organize all that stuff, but I do tend to keep my thoughts organized and I have a running narrative over or like say I played deck A and deck A is bad against deck B. Deck B wins the tournament. How do I prepare for that going into next week for maybe a smaller competition? How are other people going to react to this information? And it's just that constant running narrative in my head. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's telling too, like there's some differentiating points here between a hobbyist and a professional. I mean, you are a professional Magic the Gathering player. This is how you make your bread. This is how you get by. And it's so much of the processes that if I were to say coach someone and who was trying to be a better Magic, Magic the Gathering player, so much of what I would be telling them to do is your life. Like it's, it's just how you live your life. It's how you go about your day. And that's kind of a, a really big break point, right? Where all, all of these processes, all of these explorations are built into your lifestyle. Whereas for a hobbyist, they're like trying to squeeze them in into their free time. And that's always a challenge. It's, it's always a challenge as someone who's coming at this uh, from the outside looking in to find optimal ways to integrate magic into your life to the extent or any competition, really, how to integrate that competition into your life to the greatest extent possible without doing damage to the other aspects of your life. It's a constant struggle for sure. I think it's something that hobbyists or like aspiring pros can benefit from because like what Jerry's illustrating are aspects of, it's called like a, a growth mindset, Carol Dweck's work, if anyone wants to look into it. But what we find is people who uncap their potential do things like analyze their effort, look at what other successful people are doing, like they don't really make excuses for what went wrong. Like they they accept criticism. Like and for him, for Jerry, it sounds like even some of that criticism self imposed. It it's not about like you mentioned like deck A wasn't good against deck B. Like well, that's so and so's fault that we weren't on deck B. It's no what can like I actually control and influence for for the next competition. And that allows you to constantly figure out what's not working. And it doesn't mean you get it right the second time, but like it makes you keep trying different things that eventually lead to some development of skill. Right. And I, I think that goes back to like getting what you did right and what you did wrong in equal measure. And if you're constantly doing that, mm -hmm. it's, it's pushing you forward in the proper direction. I would also note too that this kind of recovery period, all these things we talked about previously that you don't want to change in the spur of the moment. You don't want to alter your sleep pattern. You don't want to alter your nutrition pattern as you head into the day of the event. This is the spot to start thinking about, okay, what are these big changes I want to make prior to my next event? Mm. So when it rolls around, I have a 
more pronounced sleep schedule, or I, I have a better approach to nutrition, or I have an activity to do between rounds that's going to center me every time. I, I think this is the exploration period for those things. Have you ever taken kind of the long view approach like that, Jerry, where you're like, okay, this is something that when three months from now rolls around, I will have beaten this out of my game. Even something just like physical. I mean, you can think to, it applies to magic to a smaller extent, but in the realm of like certain sports and a move where you're like, oh, if I had had a spin move as a pass rusher in this situation, I would have been so much better off. So I'm going to be working on my spin move in the off season and making sure next year I have this move in my arsenal. Uh, have you ever taken on any kind of long-term projects like that that you can think of where you built yourself up for a few months to have a new tool in your arsenal when you were appearing at your next competition? So my next competition, I, I live in the on the West Coast and my next competition is on the East Coast in Roanoke, Virginia. And there are a lot of close friends I have that live there. So normally I would want to just kind of maximize my trip and stay with them and hang out and everything. But I am getting old and I value my sleep. And there is there's basically nothing you can do right now for me that would make me want to just not get a hotel that is very close to the event site. Mm. So I think I think that is just one thing where it's just I'm not going to spend a lot of time in transit when I just want to be decompressing or, you know, maybe doing some more research and learning or uh, as far as how much sleep I get in uh, over the course of the nights so that I am able to like wake up and get to the site kind of like refresh in, in a short amount of time if necessary. So Know, it's it's stuff like that where comfort is very very important so that I'm not stressed like if if I have to get up at 7 a.m for an event that starts at nine that's such a spew yeah I mean this sounds like a, a very big refocusing of priorities I mean I, I I've been in a room with like eight other dudes with you as you try and grind out two hours of sleep around you know surrounded by people who are snoring the entire time mm -hmm. there's a challenge to it and part of growing as a competitor is being like all right this does not work for me these are the things i need to be prioritizing and this was definitely something that i think a lot of players have as a leak where they're not appropriately prioritizing their comfort and there's systemic reasons to that. We can we can keep going back to the lack of money in the sport, unfortunately. But mm -hmm. it, it's good to see you've taken steps to address that specifically. You realized it was harming your performance, and you've adjusted, and you know should be commended for that for sure. And even if it doesn't harm my performance, it just makes me enjoy my time during the event much less. Equally which is important, which yeah. which could end up. Yeah damaging my performance. Like Jonathan said, you never know what is what's actually causing that stuff. So yeah, I, I think that's a big deal. I mean, one of the things that I really value is just the fact that I actually enjoy this game and I enjoy competing and, yeah. and the, the stuff that I do and everything. And yeah, cramming eight, eight people into a hotel room to try and save a hundred bucks does not contribute to that. Yeah, I think that's an important yeah, part. It, like it doesn't make me like go home and just be like, Oh, I can't wait for the next event. It's just like, I'm just <laughs> dreading it. And it's really, it's really hard yeah. to prepare if you're not passionate and really excited to like get out there and, and go play because you know, you, you need to be excited to motivate yourself to actually put in the work. And that's probably where part of your success comes from is like the, the love of the game. And if you start associating like, bad hotel experiences or waking up 14 hours before an event because you decided to stay in a different state like obviously i'm exaggerating but like making those choices helps prevent any of that from happening yeah don't fly frontier that's another one <laughs> bring your own pillow no frontier no spirit those are the first rules of travel oh yeah we probably just threw that sponsorship out the window i'm sure they were coming for us any day that's now. okay yeah. man I, I i would not feel good taking that sponsorship <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Nobody feels good about anything surrounding those airlines. Yeah. There, there's never any upside. No Marlboro, no Frontier. Right. Right. Those are the rules. Okay. Uh, I think that is basically going to do it. I, I want to put you on the spot one more time, Jerry, before I, I let you go. I want one quick tip for our listeners. Just something you think that's unique in your approach to your competition that they could apply. You know, something that if I were to ask you, what do you think is most responsible for your success? What would you point to? What has made you one of the best magic players in the game today? 
Is it okay if I say a thing that you've almost certainly heard me say before? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, a lot of yeah. our listeners, you have to remember, this, this isn't the usual base of Magic listeners we, we interact with on a weekly basis. These are people who maybe don't even play Magic and are getting to know you for the first time. So you can feel free to share whatever you'd like here. Well, I only bring it up because you could just tell them that and then it wouldn't be any special coming from me. So uh, Just tell us. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so for me personally, Magic is very much this thing that I'll be doing for a very long time. And because of that, we, we talked about the Pro Tours only being for a year and them mattering a lot. But ultimately, as long as you are constantly trying to improve and constantly trying to learn, eventually good things will happen. And I don't sweat the results from any individual tournament very much because any mistake that you make or just you know any event that you compete in, period, is a learning experience. And if you treat everything like a learning experience and are constantly trying to grow stronger, yeah, eventually good things will happen. And I, I think that's it. I think just focusing kind of on the journey rather than any individual competition or day or anything is going to yield much better results for you. I dig it. Love it. Love your approach to the game. Love having you here. And I love all of our listeners. Thank you all for joining us. We'll be back next week to play some more head games. That's head games. (laughs) 